I have no idea uh, what this podcast will be called or what the intro will be. Cool. So I think I'm going to have to put that in later. In post? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been almost two years since we recorded this podcast. And since then, I've moved houses, my guest has moved countries, and a pandemic has started. It also still doesn't have a name. A lot has changed, and we probably have as well. So take it for what it is. A moment in time. You'll hear about the ups and downs of designing for theater, queer aesthetics, and a few other things besides. So, hope you enjoy. I am speaking with Delaney Tesh, who is a queer visual artist and designer who specializes in concept creation and production design. And she is a recent UVic grad who studied theater design, obviously. Yeah. What did I miss? It's funny because my that those first two lines of my bio, because everybody always asks for like a 50 word bio. So you always have to like nail it in the first two lines. So that's pretty much what I do. Um, I've been transitioning into doing more visual art because exciting fact, I got into a grad school, a nice. visual art grad school. Where? What do you Glasgow. Do? I got into the Glasgow School of Art. What made you want to go to grad school? <laughs> I actually really like school, which is embarrassing to say. Um, I know a lot of people like that. Well, because we have we've known each other for a really long time. Actually, yes, you should... you and Nick Guerrero are the people that I've known that I've like been consistent friends with mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. the longest, mm-hmm. which is hilarious. And Nick Guerrero played my son in a yeah in my first theater experience. Nick oh Guerrero my, played no. yeah. That was your first theater experience. Yeah, because it was Nick and I. Nick and I were both in grade nine. What, what did you do? I was assistant stage manager, and then I was stage manager on Phantom of the Opera, which was the next year. Please don't tell me that Sound of Music got you hooked on this. Career no. Path. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, no. Yeah. Sound of Music did not get me hooked. Okay. It was. The, it was the experience of working. The great thing about theater, despite the fact that I'm about to go into doing visual art, essentially, is the collaborative effort and the human element. You can't make theater as one person. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. Even one person shows, and even monologue shows, there's always two people. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a director, whether it's a stage manager, whether there's a technician involved running lights mm-hmm. and sound, whether they've had someone who bought the clothes for them, there's always another person there. And that's the one thing I love about it is that you have to work together. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that thing about visual art a little later. But oh, yeah. First, the, 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 the first question was, what exactly does a designer do? Theater design is responsible for everything that gets seen on stage. In a sort of a traditional theatrical production, there are anywhere between one and four or five designers. There's traditionally a set designer who is in charge of, you know, props and and like furniture and the, the things that make up the stage. There's the costume designer who's in charge of the clothes. There's a lighting designer who's in charge of the lights and there's a sound designer. In a lot of shows now that use projections, there's a video designer or production designer. Projection, sorry. Like, because theater is such a small industry and there's not a lot of money in it. A lot of designers do more than one job. So in my bio, um, it says that I'm a production designer, which means that I usually do set and costume design. I sometimes also do lighting design. I have not done sound design. I'm not very, I'm not good at it. So like for you, wh- where does the process of designing start? Like when you first get a script, when you first start talking to uh, playwrights and creators and stuff? Yeah, it's, it's that. The process... The process starts when a director or an artistic producer or someone ask, approaches you. They say, hey, do you want to do the show? You say, send me a script and I'll say yay or nay. Or they don't even have to do that if you like the creative team, if you want to work with a director or, you know, that kind of thing. And then usually it starts with a script. 
you read the script probably four or five times. Um, the first time you read it is to experience the show and to, and to take it in and just to like get a feeling for it. And then you go back a second time and start reading it for specifically mentioned design elements in the script. Most playwrights, they me they'll mention specific things and, and the things that they mention are important to the text, usually. A playwright doesn't often... Eh, it, de it depends on... Actually, well, it depends on what era they're writing in. A playwright doesn't often fully describe what's going on because the playwright doesn't really care about that stuff. They do, obviously. It's their vision that they want to show. Um, They're like vague directions in like big block letters on the script, right? Yeah, they can be. It depends on it depends on the format, obviously. Okay, yeah. But yeah, they're usually they're usually not part of the dialogue. Yeah. But if something is part of the dialogue, that means that it's important. Like if they mention, it's like, oh, this fish tank. Yeah, you got it. You gotta, you, gotta have a, you gotta have some representation of a fish tank yeah. on stage. Yeah. Mm. It's funny that you asked me to 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 talk about design is because the process that I use for design is much more intensive than a lot of other, a lot of the peers that I went to school with and a lot of other people that I've worked with uh, is because I'm very, I'm very much a perfectionist and I like to, I, I do things a hundred percent or I don't do them at all. Are you talking about putting on additional hats, like additional roles, or do you mean a more expansive, oh, like, or more in detail? Oh, it? both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> it's pretty common for people around this demographic to be more than one type of designer, but I often do a lot of things and I have a lot of additional skills other than just being a designer. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of making abilities as well, which a lot of designers don't. And I also go into a lot more detail. Like when I read a script, I read it probably four times. And like a lot of designers will only read it once or only read it twice. But I like to make sure that I pick everything yeah. out because that's your that's your job as a designer is yeah. to get as much out of the script as possible in order to ser best service the vision on mm -hmm. stage because it's your job in establishing that if you fail in some way you let down what everyone sees mm -hmm. because it's 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 you they're seeing you mm -hmm. the, the one thing um that kind of kicks us in the ass is that if a designer does the best job that they can do on a production they are not noticed because their job is to serve the overall vision and the life of the work itself, whether it's the direction or the script. The designer's job is a, as a secondary creative force to serve the best vision of what the director wants and ultimately what the playwright wants. And so if you do the best job that you're able to do as a designer... No one should, in theory, know that you did a thing because the vision is so seamless. And that, for me, kicks me in the butt because I do a really good job with my work and therefore nobody notices. Nobody thinks to credit to the, the designer, which is a, a fun thing that actually happened <laughs> quite recently, actually, on, on one of the shows I just did. It's one of the biggest reasons why I don't like doing theater design is because you don't often get credit for your work, which is really rough. I, th I think back to a show that I went to of yours. I went to see the first iteration of Open Face Beholding. Did you? Yep. Oh, I d there were a lo there were a lot of people that came, and I do not remember. It is okay. Thank you. It Thank you okay. for coming. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I didn't tell you that just to ingratiate myself. No, no, I <laughs> really appreciate it. Though. <laughs> I'll, I'll describe my experience very briefly, and then I want to ask you a little bit about that. <laughs> sure. I love hearing about how other people interpret yeah. the show. When I, well, I, I, I don't want to go as far as to interpret the meaning of it. Oh, I'll just I, say, don't like, worry about that. <laughs> when I opened the doors at Metro, because I was the first iteration, it was at Fifty Fifty. Now, yeah, right? we just did it at the Fifty Fifty Arts Collective. Okay. It, it was at Intrepid Theater Club, not at the Metro. Oh, sorry, Intrepid Theater Club. They're part of the same. Yeah. I opened the door. It. And you were there and 
you know, I paid my mission and then you gave me some poker chips. I did. And then there were a series of actors dressed up in a variety of costumes within the space. And if I gave them a poker chip into a bowl, they'd speak. And they were dressed in all manner of things, you know, from jeans and t-shirt kind of stuff to like something really elaborate, like... I don't know, LED necklaces, long flowing fabrics, the crown, yeah. of, the crown of roses, the crown of, oh, bright. yeah. Um, yeah. Like, how did you, <laughs> okay, 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 so first of all, you call it installation design, right? Yes. What's the difference? It's, it's funny, I call it installation design, but I think actual people who do installation design would be like, mm, no, I, I think... In reality, what my personal practice is right now and what I'm hoping to transition into going into art school is doing uh, a combination of installation performance art or like live. I, I also I often call it live installation when I talk about it because I do use performers. And that's the one thing that differentiates what I do for like people who do installation art and installation design is that a lot of visual art doesn't actually use a real person. Because as soon as you use a real person, you get into performance art and people are like, mm, performance art. Or at least a, bit, a lot of people I know are like, mm, performance Too art. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of people also don't understand performance art and think it's only for like doing things for shock value. And that's right. that's some performance art, but right. that's not all performance art. So I guess I should clarify that narrative isn't a very strong part of this, right? Like, Not really. There are a lot of themes. <laughs> But I wouldn't say that there's like a beginning, middle, and end. No, and I think that's definitely what confused, what confuses a lot of people about the show is that there's no beginning, middle, and end. You can show up whenever. Yeah, the, the show that he was talking about is called Open Face Beholding, which is the first piece that I have ever written myself and that I've ever like sort of conceived conceptually. And the idea came to me in the shower, as all good ideas yeah, do. It's warm. It's warm. Um, yeah. And it's really crazy to try and describe because without any context for it, a lot of people get really confused because they're like, wait, actors standing and you give them things and they say stuff to you? And it's what? But it's about the relationship that we have in modern Western visual culture between our modern interpretations of of things and Catholic and, and Christian art. Because at least for the background that I have, which is, I will admit, very Western, but it's the greats in Western art history are predominantly based in in Christian art. Um, Michelangelo's David. It's from the story yeah. of David and Goliath, which is yeah. in the Bible. Yeah. All, almost all of Botticelli's paintings, other than like the birth of Venus and Primavera, those are um, sort of like pagan, quote unquote, based. Yeah. But a lot of Renaissance art, which sort of forms the basis of the these like great masters of what we consider the the pinnacle of, of art and the things that have influenced visual culture in that way are almost entirely from the Christian religion. And that was a really fascinating thing to me because I'm not religious at all. I'm actually like third generation non-religious. So my entire family has no basis of what it is to have that kind of belief and have that kind of faith and belong to that sort of chain of community. And so this show was my way of trying to understand that. And so when Hugo talks about these, the, the costumes that I made for these actors, they were all based in 
I ended up I ended up going with a bit of a theme for this particular iteration, uh, and then also the second iteration that we just did, which was kind of like a like a neon Vegas type vibe. It's a very dark room, but very bright pinpoint sources of light in many colors. Yeah. I used almost entirely practical light sources. So all of the light sources either came from the costumes themselves or from props that the actors had. As opposed to like an added spotlight or something? Yes. Okay. Um, with the exception of a couple of them that, that in the theater space that we used, we actually did use a little bit of light because it was really dark because, you know, black box. But I would say 90% of the light sources were practical lights, which mm-hmm. um, is a, like a theater shorthand for lights that aren't operated by a technician, right. basically. And when I entered the space, the, the actors there, they represent archetypes, right? Yes. So the theme we ended up going for was embodiments of new types of religious figures drawing from modern understandings and a Christian basis. We called them effigies because you were offering something to them. They were uh, like physical embodiments of gods, quote unquote. And so the first effigy that you would encounter was called the preacher. He was based on St. Francis of Assisi, who established um, the Franciscan order, which is a very famous religious order that has a lot of subsects of it. And also like there's a lot of schools that are named after him. Um, If we were to name a Christian saint, St. Francis is going to be one of the first ones that people think of. And then that combined with one of the seven heavenly virtues, which is the counterpart to the seven deadly sins that not a lot of people know about, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, because the sins were the one that the ones that got the most <laughs> the most publicity, but we, they're we've been negative forever. Uh, right, but there there is actually there is actually a seven heavenly virtues that that counteracts the seven deadly sins, as a lot of people know them. And the combination that we had for Saint Francis was charity. And so what I did was four months of research, essentially playing like a matching game, which sounds very like <laughs> silly when I say it that way, but. What's really crazy about a lot of Christian art is that they will attach meaning to anything and everything in the painting. If you take pretty much any painting that has a Christian basis, if you point it to anything in the background and ask someone who is an art historian, anything that's placed in that painting has a specific symbolic meaning. And that was part of my idea (laughs) for this show is that I wanted to showcase how the iconography specifically means different things according to where you put it and what our modern inferences of it is. Yeah, so could you just int- introduce the actors and who they represented? Just like list them off. Like, yeah, of course. So Chase Hebert, who's been a lovely collaborator of mine for a very long time, played the preacher. I'll talk about the first version since yeah. that's the one that you went to, yeah. who was a combination of St. Francis and Charity. The next person was played by Jack Hayes, and it was the sailor who was a combination of, um, like... St. Nicholas and also St. Brendan, who are both patron saints of of the sea and of mariners, and then the virtue of hope. And then the next one was, who's played by Victoria Simpson, is the just, who is a combination of St. Lucy or St. Lucia, who's the patron saint of light, and justice. That one was pretty obvious. Yeah. (laughs) Some of of them, it's really obvious in the name, like what they're based on. And then I think the next one was the mother, uh, who's played by um, KP. Yes, who was based off of the Virgin Mary, because we got it. You got to put the Virgin Mary in there, yeah. and prudence, the virtue of prudence or wisdom, sometimes as it's also called. Were they the one with the long flowing robes? Is that? Uh, they were just in red. Okay, yeah, dressed in red. Okay. The, just, they looked kind of obviously like the Virgin Mary. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the next one was the woman who's played by Molly McDowell Pulaski, who's based off of Mary Magdalene. And also, I believe temperance was the virtue. 
And then the next one was The King, who's based off of Jesus, who's played by Ariel Parsons, and their virtue was faith. Mm-hmm. You got to put that one in there somewhere. Yeah. And then the last one in the series was The Lost, who's played by Kai Today, which is based off of St. Jude, who's the patron saint of lost causes, and Fortitude, or Courage. Mm-hmm. So... There were seven characters in total, seven virtues. Seven is a big number in Christianity. Right. Like odd, odd numbers, three, five, and seven are, yeah. are pretty big, but seven is very prominent. Seven heavenly virtues, seven yeah. sins. We played off that. So there were seven actors. Admission was $7. You got seven tokens. It was very, like there was yeah. a lot of sevens in yeah. the show. Yeah. Um, um, I remember when I was interacting with the with the actors that sometimes it was, it was a little bit of a monologue, but sometimes they would address me. Like, I remember, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget the... Don't worry about it. The character's news, but I know I remember um, Kai just kind of like grabbed me by the arm very gently and looked directly into my eyes. And yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. The really great thing about this show and a way that I figured out how to describe it was it's micro-performance on a large scale. And micro-performance is sort of like a newish movement in emerging in indie theater right now, where uh, it's a single actor in a very small space with a very small audience, or like one or two actors. But it's usually does a lot of things like break the fourth wall, and there's often a lot of direct address. And I am very deeply fascinated by that as a as an Why? as an artist as an artistic concept. And this is actually what I goes into like what I apply to grad schools with is that large scale and traditional theater is dying because. People are uncomfortable with group catharsis. So theater was invented for the community to go through an experience together and to have a group catharsis, have an, an, an expelling of an emotion together. That's why the ancient Greeks used it. There's a history of it being used that way um, in Indonesia and a lot of Southeast Pacific cultures as well. And I'm sure if you looked into theater history in pretty much every continent and every culture where there is a tradition of performance, there is some aspect of that built into it. Humanity is based around community. Culture is based around community and having a way to jointly experience something is deeply ingrained in us um and what happened to it you know what i i I have no like actual answers to that question but it's disappearing and i like the like i'm sure there's a lot of people that could go into theories on why that are related to like sort of like the way that we view view privacy and like what's and like a lot of things in terms of social media and the use the using of cell phones and a lot of a lot of like self-imposed isolation i think mm-hmm. is a big thing so you're saying is it becoming less relevant culturally or do you mean it in a very concrete sense where audiences are declining Audi- both audiences for traditional de- theater are declining and there's there's a lot of factors it's becoming really expensive to produce yeah i mean it's always been really expensive to produce but people were willing to put more money into it when it was culturally understood that it was important mm-hmm. and i think due to due to the sort of demonization is too strong of a word but the demonization of of the importance of art in culture that's that's been happening over the last 50 years it's been it's been more than that but you can, you can see it really pr- and especially right now sort of like in this. a deprioritization in comparison to say like more hard skills economic success like that yeah yeah there's a, a lot of emphasis that's pressed upon people learning things that will make them money mm-hmm. and i feel like it's really tragic that we, that we lose really talented people because of the predominance of capitalism. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you're saying that in some ways, micro-performance can be a bit of a something a little more relevant today, given the environment we're in? 
Yes, in sort of like a longhand way. So theater audiences are scared and uncomfortable being in a theater space because it doesn't directly affect a modern audience the same way as it did, say, a Victorian audience or a Shakespearean audience or a, an ancient Greek audience. The fourth wall has made it has made everything incredibly divorced from reality in a way, um, even if you're doing an intensely realistic play. People often think that it's like watching TV or like watching a movie, but it's not. And it makes people really nervous watching live performers do crazy things because they think things are going to go wrong and they get really anxious about that. Yeah, it's very, it's it's unpredictable and that sometimes also scares people. Um, There's also joy in that too, isn't it? Why do people go to improv? That's the thing, right? And that's what I really like about about live theater in that way. But for a lay person, for someone who is not like uneducated, but doesn't know a lot about art, it can freak people out. And so what I want to do is to create theater and performance art and art that actively engages with people, but doesn't scare them away. A lot of people also get freaked out by not like a new thing in theater. It's not a new thing in theater, but sort of like the words audience participation. (laughs) That scares a lot of people. I mean, it also scares me. I don't like going to theater where I know I'm going to get called on or pulled on stage or asked to do something. I don't like doing that. It makes me really uncomfortable because I don't want to be performing for other people. I don't want everything that I'm doing to be scrutinized by a lot of people. Someone else was paid to do it. Yeah. Like I paid money for (laughs) to watch someone else do that. I know a lot of people that like doing that. I know a lot of people that are fine with doing that, but I know that it, it freaks a lot of people out and it freaks me out. And so. Is this compromise? Is this like a. Yeah. I, the one thing that I love, and so this is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I promise it's related. I really love being in art galleries because I, I find them very like, I find them to be a sacred space for me. In what other place do you gather art together and then experience it all at once? It's like being in a theater, but instead of demanding active participation, it's very passive. And I feel like one of the things that's unsuccessful about art galleries is they are passive participation. You don't have to engage with them. Like a lot of people take their, you know, relatives that are in town to an art gallery to just be like, oh, we're doing a thing. It's And it's the same thing with theater. It's like, oh, look, we're engaging in culture, blah, 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 blah. And it's not, the art won't be effective if the person isn't actively putting the effort in. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, one of the flaws with visual art as a genre, as a type of art, is that inherently by itself, it doesn't force you to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of visual artists that will be mad at me and say, yes, it does, blah, blah, blah. But, in, but for someone who comes from theater, it doesn't. You can be the greatest painter that has ever lived. You can do the most photorealistic painting. You can do the most expressionist painting. But if that work doesn't affect the person that's looking at it, then it's a failure. Mm-hmm. I, I, right now, I, I'm madly trying to look up an essay because it's interesting that you talk about really enjoying art galleries as church because there was this essay that I read in art history class years ago that compared the idea of going to an art gallery as though it were church and, and that and that it's a way of... I want to say that it's by uh, Carol Duncan, but I... There's um, a possibility that I might have read it. And that like you walk through the space, but people don't spend enough time looking at each one. And that's more of a way to tell other people that you're enlightened. I don't know. If yeah. that's, I think that's the thesis of the essay. It's been a little while. There's a lot of, not a lot of commentary about that, but I know like I'm, I'm a little bit aware of what you're talking about. I think it's a sacred space that a lot of people use the wrong way. 
Yeah. If that makes sense. But to circle back to why I was talking about it, I want to create like, and this, and this was essentially my thesis for applying for graduate school was I want to create a space that forces you to engage with the work in a way that everyone is comfortable with. It's not a performance that will grab you out of the audience and have all of the focus put on you. Right. It's a show that will do that will function if you don't participate, but you get something out of it that's more than just looking at it if you participate. It's passive, but it's also personal. Yeah, and that's and I think I actually managed to do it really well with open face beholding, which is kind of a miracle because it was the first thing that I ever really wrote or conceived of. And so the the space was laid out like an art gallery. So all of the performers mm -hmm. were up against walls and there was a lot of open space that you could walk around in. So you didn't have to put a token at any of them. You could have just looked at all of them. And they... <laughs> they I watched other people put yeah. tokens in and watch them interact. And then sometimes if I wanted to do it... I would do it and then have them interact with me directly. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of people, the first time that they experienced the space, didn't interact with anyone at all for the first five minutes or so. Because uh, it Yeah, same with me. It was a it's a it's a it was a very overwhelming space to be in because there was sometimes, depending on when you were there, there was a lot there was like quite a few amount of people, but also there's a lot of color. The the it, it had we we built a soundscape that was uh, like reminiscent of a church, so it was very echoey. There was footsteps, there was a church bell in it, like it was a like an like an we purposely built it so that it was like both a calm and overwhelming environment mm -hmm. um, solemn may not be the right word but it, it, it had that feel it's yeah it was like almost serious it's, it's yeah serious but not in sort of the negative connotations of the way that we perceive mm -hmm. serious if that makes sense mm -hmm. a lot of actually a lot of feedback that i got from this show from this show the two times that we've done it is that it's made people feel profoundly uncomfortable and profoundly comforted at the same time mm -hmm. which is a weird thing to say yep. and you, and I'm sure people are going to be like that doesn't make any sense but it it has to I think it comes down to the actors engaging with you personally yeah and that's a thing that we often don't get mm -hmm. you really don't get it in sort of traditional forms of theater the actors don't have like a huge script that they can go off of they have specifically seven lines only seven things that okay. they can say for the first version, the actors wrote all of their own stuff and then we like edited it down and made it all uniform and whatever. Um, and then for the second version, I actually wrote probably about 85% of the script. It's a lot like shaking a human-shaped magic eight ball, Yeah. but there's a human brain behind it. Mm -hmm. So, and one thing that my director, who I should mention my name, who's incredible and I love her deeply, her name is Karen Sari. She's one of the only people that I can actually just like say an image to and she can interpret that image into whatever it needs to be, which is really incredible. Her interpretation of what these actors needed to say and how they needed to decide what to say is that the actor, they get like a few seconds to look at the person who's standing in front of them and really figure out from how they look, from how they're standing, from what their face says. They use those moments to decide what to say to them. So it's personalized in a kind of way. Personalized in a way that there's only seven things that they can say. Yeah. Which was one of the really magic things about it is that all of those phrases could mean different things depending on how you said them and could mean different things depending who you said them to, mm -hmm. which was really which was really interesting. Some of the actors that I talked to were really strongly focused on me to the point where it was like they were peering deep into my soul. <laughs> and then there were others where it seemed like there was a wall between us. But Ooh. in a delivery, I'm thinking specifically about Ariel. 
you know, who... Who played Jesus. Who played Jesus yeah. with a guitar. The reason why I used the Vegas aesthetic and that, like, really 1950s gritty type of Americana aesthetic was it meant that I got to combine Jesus imagery with Elvis imagery, mm-hmm. yeah. which was awesome. <laughs> oh, it was a good time. But yeah, so Ariel, who's played the king, oh, she had a red guitar on her back and she can't actually sing and play guitar and she was wearing uh, a fringe leather jacket and she had a shirt that had these huge red roses on it and standing much taller than me yeah much taller than the audience what she was standing on was actually the bleachers so we had her standing on top on top of there as sort of like a callbacks to like how jesus is interpreted like an unattainable goal um and not really on the same level as everyone else ariel was like five feet five or so feet off the ground and she was barefoot which is a, a which was a, a jesus thing and yeah. so the closest point that an audience member had to jesus was via their bare feet i really wanted to, <laughs> to learn a little bit about the, like the fact that you did it twice yeah i wanted to know what changed between the first and second and maybe why you wanted to do it a second time you mentioned script changes being one but oh. yeah so we less actually less changed on a conceptual level than I thought doing it the second time. Karen wanted to expressly wanted to do it a second time because she felt like we didn't do enough rehearsal the first time, which is fair. We only did two weeks of rehearsal the first time, which is not a lot. And I really wanted to do it again because it was really fun. And we only did two days of performance the first time. I mean, we only did one day of performance the second time, which is even less, but it was, it was just an, it's, it was just nice. We just wanted to do it again and sort of a selfish desire to produce our own work. But also it was a good and really fulfilling artistic experience. And all of the actors wanted to do it again. Mm. There's always going to be like one person that really doesn't want to do a show again. Or, but the fact that every person who we, who we previously worked with, who was in the city and avail, who was in the city wanted to do it again is kind of incredible. Do you think, think that the actors wanted to do it again because they had some level of control over the script more so than usual where like sometimes the script, like it, it is set in stone <coughs> for actors. You can't change it or like maybe in the creative process, but like not to the same degree. No, I wouldn't say it's because of that, because what's really common, especially in sort of like my peer group is uh, device theater is really common, which is where the director and the actors all collaborate, co- collaboratively, there we go, create the script together. So I don't, think it was that i think that it was and several people actually said this to me several of the actors said this to me is that it was such a different rehearsal experience and they felt that they were really free and they felt very supported by myself and by karen and supported by the company to make these weird creative choices and to do this really objectively very weird piece of theater that was so different from everything else that we've done previously Mm. and i think that's i think that's more why would you want to do it a third time oh yeah i don't ever want to take a break from working on this show i i love it the one thing that i will say is i want to do a different version of it next time where i examine a different aesthetic I, ha- I actually have two other pitches for different versions of this show. So one of them is for an outdoor version of the show. And the other one is for is for performance in specifically an abandoned warehouse or an abandoned building. Mm-hmm. So you do want to keep reinventing and tinkering with Oh, that. yeah, absolutely. Because I think the, for- the format of the show is one of its strengths. Not necessarily, like the aesthetic is obviously a very, very strong and very striking. But I think the format and the theme are both, st- are two 
are too strong and too important to only limit to one aesthetic, mm. which is why I want to do more versions of it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, and I actually think I've been working on the show for almost two years now, which is a long ass time yeah. to be working on something, especially when you're an emerging creator. And I think that was a, an idea from the beginning was always to make different versions of it. Mm -hmm. um, Cause there are so many, there are so many ways that Christianity has impacted visual culture in the Western world. And I think all of them deserve to be examined in some way. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask a bit about how your queer identity affects your aesthetic and the aesthetics of your work. It is the first line of your bio. This is a really interesting conversation that I've had with a couple of other, with a couple of other people, both, both straight and queer, is that before now, or sort of like the last couple of years, when queerness has been much more socially acceptable or much more prominent in culture is that a lot of the dialogue about it four or five years ago was about creating um, characters and interpretations where queerness was not their main personality. And that's still a big thing is a lot of like side characters that that get created for diversity points is where like queerness is their only personality trait. Right, like the gay best friend. Yeah, yeah. which is a thing that I hate so much. <laughs> and and for me that's still a really I feel like I've internalized a lot of that because I try not to have my own queerness affect how I view art I mean it inherently does obviously queerness has an aesthetic now which it didn't have before it sort of did but now it's now straight people see it like queer people have seen it forever but it's merged its way into generic consensus of what we understand queerness to be i guess the most recognizable one would be the the rainbow yeah there's the pride flag but also there's a lot of and i and i and i say this with love and affection but a lot of young queer people look the same because there's the things like the dyed hair and the like which is funny because i showed up wearing a jacket that had a lot of pins on it mm -hmm. but like there's the denim jacket that has a lot of pins on it yeah. there's th that kind of thing i've heard of something called the bisexual haircut and i don't know if yeah, it's I, true. I don't know if I can describe it or do it justice, <laughs> but I think I know it if I see it. I, There's, it's yeah, it's, there, I, yes, there is a, there is indeed a bisexual haircut and I did have it at one point. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and there's a lot of, there's also like a specific sort of like butch lesbian vibe that a right. lot of people have. And if you were to look at sort of a large cross section of what a lot of young queer people look like, you can see that there is a sort of like a standard in in aesthetic and i do not want to be defined by that like the game, <coughs> you personally or how that how you might bring those aesthetics into your own shows or your own production personally i don't want to be defined by it and also it, in a tiny way it rubs me the wrong way that we've tried so hard to not have our queerness be our only defining trait and then suddenly now we have like a homogenized version of us mm -hmm. that everybody recognizes mm -hmm. like for for some people that is very comforting and i understand that i it's it's really really comforting to see recognizably someone who is like you it's yes. so important i can't even put the words into how important that is but for me as someone who um i've never like looked s like the generic public like I have, as a lot of people do, have like a, a body type that is not deemed culturally like normal. And so for me, it's been a really long 
really, really long struggle finding an aesthetic that I feel works and, and being comfortable with that. And that's something that I've that I've been working on for a long time. And it's part of the reason why I, why I do so much work in aesthetics and why my personal work and my practice and my shows are so grounded, have a very grounded general aesthetic is because I think it's very important to be in control of how you present to the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever want to default to something. Mm -hmm. But like you're, you're talking about like shying away from that specific image of mm -hmm. of what queerness is but i can remember in in open face beholding there there's some some actors that present as hyper masculine but in mm -hmm. that american way yeah. and like there's there's inclusion of you know people who might not strongly identify as like one or the other yeah so that is not inherent is not now yes there's I, I wonder i wonder what the best way to parse this is i think the best way to parse this is i want to be representative of people within the queer identity. But I don't want to limit those people to only things that straight culture or that sort of like homogenized queer culture understands as being acceptable or okay. So you're, I think the best example of this would be Kai and Kai is non-binary transmasculine. And I had them wearing sort of like the traditional greaser americana look like a white t-shirt with a rolled up sleeves j dirty jeans there's a baseball bat in there wasn't it? oh yeah yeah there was i leaned in full into the baseball aesthetic on that one thank I'm you for sorry. joining us it's okay i've been coughing the whole time <laughs> oh you explained this like three hours into this yeah, yeah. i'll have to shift this into the beginning it's yeah okay. just put it right at the beginning yeah it's fine um and the yeah and i, I there was to me a lot of power in putting a trans mask person as and putting a trans person specifically in that position mm -hmm. because we associate that position as being or that aesthetic as being very patriarchal yeah. and very traditionally masculine and i think that there is power in in occupying that space when you are not that mm -hmm. i don't ever want to shy away from using my queerness or using my connections to queerness and using the queer people that i work with in my work but i don't ever want to be homogenized mm -hmm. in a way that I fear we are becoming homogenized. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like there will continue to be some queer <coughs> undercurrents in your work, whether it's like sometimes it's who you choose or sometimes it's how they look or how they are dressed in the show. Mm -hmm. But like it just it still seems quite deliberate, though. Ye yes. Yes, I would say that it is deliberate. It's funny that you pick up on it. It's Well, it's not funny. It's interesting that you pick up on it because I don't inherently see it. It's because yeah. those are the, like, I, like, you know, the birds of a feather flock together type deal. A lot of my friends are queer. Mm -hmm. I don't ever want to be subjected to using my queerness as only for artistic merit if that makes sense and there's a lot of places where you can um there and there's a lot of like uh writing competitions and a lot of things like that where it's like oh submit your like submit your queer work and or if you're a queer artist who makes queer work and that kind of thing but for me a lot of what those mean is that the work has to be explicitly about what it's like to be queer mm -hmm. not even just personal experience just like experience like the way that queer people 
experience the world. Um, like I hate coming out stories. I hate them so much. Oh, oh boy. Oh, oh man. And also like queer people view them very differently than straight people do. Right. Obviously. But a coming out story for me is so painful to watch because you just relive the same drama and the same anxiety and the same feelings that happened when you had to do it the first time right and why do you want to live in that eternal hell for an hour and a half while you watch someone do it on screen like what well i think for someone who maybe never had to and, do that and this is the th- and well but here's that the, it seems powerful to them and, well, and here's the thing is it will get straight people it always gets straight people. yeah yeah <laughs> um, yeah but also and i think that it's and for for young people also, I think there's a there's an element of it that's really important to see someone like them doing that thing. Representation and, six, and repre- yeah. it's the representation thing. And I you know I speak at it from a very from from a relatively privileged place in the way that I've been out for a long ass time. I've been out for like eight years, and that is a long time for someone who's twenty three. The, the great thing about it for me, for people who like don't know what I look like, who are listening to this, which I don't know if there will be that many, um, but I'm, I've, I present very butch. I look like a lesbian. I am actually bisexual, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I look, I look like a lesbian. I have short hair. I wear mostly men's clothes. I, I look and asymmetrical I, short hair. I, I do. So we're slowly like butch people are, are reclaiming the, the Macklemore mm-hmm. haircut. And I've had this haircut for a really long time, which, but I really like it. And yeah, but the, the, I have almost always worn men's clothes, sort of like the, the, <coughs> the exhibit of presenting as queer looking has been a part of my like personal aesthetic for longer than I was out. So when I actually came out to people, nobody was surprised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like my parents weren't surprised. None of my friends were surprised. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was way less of a big deal than I thought it was going to be. Because you you get scared by a lot of these coming out stories and you get scared by the way that you're represented in media and you get scared by, you get you get scared by the way you're, you're portrayed, mm-hmm. your culture is portrayed. And I was so scared. I was so afraid to come out to my parents, and they were fine with it. They they did not give a single shit. <laughs> my dad literally did not. He was at the table like eating dinner, and he just didn't even look up. He was like, "Yeah," and, <laughs> and I was like, "Thanks." <laughs> As my heart's going like a fucking hundred miles like, an hour. Simultaneously amazing, but also maybe you wish for something a little more. Dramatic. Yeah, I kind of like wished that they had been more like validating about it yeah, my parents yeah. have like a long history of like not giving a shit about the things that i do so it's it, it was <laughs> like on brand <laughs> it was very on brand for them but i like it was really it was really hard for me and i i yeah i had my first girlfriend when i was in grade 11 but this but i'm 23 now and i i think i was 16 when we when I first started dating my ex-girlfriend and that, okay, maybe it's not eight years, but that's st- still a long ass time. A substantial amount This of is time. still a long ass time. And so I like. Does that bring you like a kind of familiarity and comfort with the identity? Do you think people that come out maybe later don't because it's fresh? Yes. And I was actually just about to speak to that is I think that I've, I already did the whole like 
figuring out what the labels were and the whole like what parts of this do I feel comfortable with and that kind of thing I did that while I was in high school and so when I went to university and now when I'm not in university I don't need to do the 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 like aesthetic alignment where the where the like personal aesthetic aligns with what we expect queerness to be now sorry i had did finger quotes there so like where you would dress and present in the way that you think someone of your identity might yeah and i speak to this coming from experience of one of my like one of my friends spent her whole life in private school and in a uniform and when she went to university that was the first time she ever had to like figure out how to dress for herself and she spent a long she was in university for five years and she spent a long ass time trying to figure out how she wanted to present and then also at the same time had sexual identity crisis and so for me she was she was my friend at the time and I really and I wanted to be there for her but it was so tiring watching a person freak out about something that I had done like three years ago and and this is a thing I you know I've, I've a low tolerance level for people doing weird shit not not in not in like a bad way. It's just like I get like tired of people really fast. That sounds that's not any better. What are you talking about? Oh my god, I'm such a I'm such an asshole. It's just breathe, I breathe. like I, I I don't know how to describe it to someone who doesn't know me because a lot of people that know me like I I don't have a lot of I don't suffer fools. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's one <laughs> that's, way to put that's it. A, sure. That's a good way to put it. But and, sometimes being in university, you are a fool because you don't know what oh, you're doing and you're yeah, figuring it I'm out. I'm not saying that I wasn't a fool. You're saying that you had already <laughs> done that. I. It's just that particular, this particular situation. I. I like, like in a way, I didn't handle it well. But um, at the same time, it was, it was tiring to me to watch someone do that thing. Because it was just like, uh, I'm also like fairly empathetic. So I like spend a lot of emotion when people spend a lot of emotion. So to for me, watching someone freak out about their sexuality was very like, it was very tiring because I had already, like, I it was like, I was reliving those emotions again. And, and and so seeing it didn't maybe bring you a sense of catharsis, but rather no something else. Yeah. Like a bad flashback or a... It, it wasn't even bad. I just knew what I wanted. And I didn't need to go through those feelings of indecision again. Mm. And that's a, and that's a big thing for me personally in the way that I like do stuff is that I know I'm very sure and aware of the things that I want. And especially now I'm also very sure and comfortable in how I present and that, and this is the thing that I like a lot of people are confused with by me and sort of a lot of people that first meet me now because a lot, because you know, I have a theater background. A lot of my friends do theater. The <laughs> the funny thing about actors is, is they're all almost always performative. The mm. like in their personal lives. Mm. So the the face that they present to people is not always real. Mm. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's never real. And they will very rarely show who, like truly who they are i just did air quotes again there to a person unless they they know that they can trust them the thing for me is i it took me so long to be comfortable with how i present and how i look why would i want to be someone else Mm -hmm. like why would you want to be something else when you could just be you Mm -hmm. and so does that how does that bleed into the work 
how does that bleed into the work? I don't know. Like, there's some limits there, it seems. Yeah, I, I think that it, I think that it bleeds into into my work in a very specific way. In that, everything that I do is genuine. I don't, I don't fake stuff. That seems like a weird thing to say because theater is always fake because it's on a stage. You can't get around that because you're in a, a room that is not authentic um, in sort of the traditional model, I should say. But I I dedicate myself wholeheartedly to make this thing as real as it can be and as authentic as it can be. And I'm going to speak a little bit about a show actually that you photographed for me, which was Daddy Issues, which is a device theater piece that my friend Colette and our um, indie theater company co-produced in 2017 for the French Festival. And the show was a devised theater piece about women's relationships with their fathers because <laughs> it's, 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 very, it's, it's complicated because uh, women, if they have a bad relationship with their, their dad are, are, you know, blamed for that. And, and then if they have a good relationship with their dad, then they're, you know, it's equally blamed for that as well to clarify a device theater meaning that the actors had something to do with the narrative yes so the piece itself was actually stories of the there were four actors in the show so it was each actor told as much of their their own relationship with their fathers as they were comfortable putting on stage and then colette the director also went out and interviewed people who didn't want to perform in the show but wanted to share their story and then we the actors and the director all pieced that together to create did you actually end up seeing it yes i did yeah you did thank you i also really enjoyed it it was a it was a good show to work on so they so all five of them pieced that together to create an an experience of it was devised in partially verbatim theater and verbatim theater just means using text that is said by other people it's not like the playwright's not like writing the things for the actors to say it's the the actors have that that text is like found essentially or said by other people first and then brought into the space colette basically gave me creative free reign on what the show was going to look like which was a very kind thing for her to have done and she trusted me a lot and i really appreciate that but the one thing that she said is she wanted the actors to look like heightened versions of themselves Mm. because theater is always a heightened artistic space and the actors were essentially telling were telling both their own stories and other people's stories and so my job on that show instead of becoming a designer was becoming a stylist which well i was both but for for the costumes specifically so i basically went to each of the actors and was like hey i've assigned you these i assigned each of the actors a color and then worked within those colors to create their costumes and they and i like looked at their at their wardrobe and what they had and i like you know used my my abilities as a designer to figure out like what would look best on them and what i think they should wear and that kind of thing and they had two costumes each and then when i came in the in with the costumes they all were amazed at how closely i had captured what they would have worn and in fact three of the four actors bought 50% or more of their costumes. (laughs) (laughs) They really identified enough to bring it into real Um, life. Realer life. Realer life. Which is one thing that I pride myself in is that most of the shows that I do, an actor will buy a garment. Mm. And that 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 is a really high compliment because it means that they feel comfortable in what you put them in. Um, because you never as a as a costume designer you never want your actor to be uncomfortable because then they're not putting their best performance then they're focused on something that's wrong with them 
or that they like uh, perceived that's wrong with them and not on the people that are in the scene with them or the audience or the the text that they're working with um and so that's a really that when an actor wants to buy something from the show that's a very high compliment for me specifically mm-hmm. um but daddy issues is, was really interesting because there that show was also kind of about that show i think yeah everyone in that show everyone working on that show except for one person was queer and so it was also kind of about it was about being queer but also not about being queer in a way that i really want to make theater is like queer like 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 yeah queerness shouldn't in my opinion shouldn't influence shouldn't be the only part of something like the only driving force in something. Do you think that show is the closest you came to working on a show that was about the like capital E queer experience? Yeah, I think so. Mostly because there was a, there was a few coming out stories in there and sort of, mm. and you know, by nature, it was about family. So it was going to happen. And yeah, I think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that I have anything more to say on yeah, that yeah. in that regard. Just because of my, yeah, I, I think, and I think sort of to circle back around like why I was talking about my reluctance to be, my, my, my confidence in presenting who I am is I don't want to be associated. I don't want my experience to be boiled down to the fact that I'm queer. Even mm. though I know that's what a lot of people see from me on first regard because I look... I look very gay. <laughs> Nothing I can do about it. And it is in the first line of your bio. It is. I know. And I kind of hate that. Mm. Like I kind of, like I struggled for a long time putting that, like, I, like putting that in there. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is I know that it will, that people are looking for diverse viewpoints. So you kind of have to play up the diversity if mm-hmm. you, when you, when you have it. I'm like, I'm white. So yeah. I only got the one. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's complicated right like it's, how much you want to use yeah something that's very personal and... as artistic merit yeah like you like you really like it sucks like i want my work to be artistically valid because it is good work not because it is queer work yeah you know what i mean yeah um yeah I, this is probably a privilege i have in terms of um being a white person and being and making art is that I don't like I want my art to be recognized on a merit excluding from the the one diversity card if you will that I have um but the thing is is like my work is going to be is I already have that one step up inter- because I'm white and so yeah I like I understand that my that, like my place in talking about this is going to be very different is go- is going to be quite p- privileged in that regard because there I don't have like my ex- like I'm lucky that I don't have to talk about it's almost like I don't have to talk about my experience mm. because like like no one want no and no one wants to hear about like my like middle class upbringing as a, a as a white person like it's not mm-hmm. interesting it's we've been hearing those stories forever. We don't need them anymore. People continue to not get enough of them, which is bizarre, and I don't understand it. Um. <laughs> and so, like, it's very, it's, yeah, I, yeah. So I'm lucky in that I can, like, mm-hmm. my ex, like, I. It's almost like I can div- divorce my experience, my right. experience, like my art. 
I don't feel the need. I don't feel the need to make art about my experiences because no one wants to see my experiences because mm-hmm. they've been the mainstream forever and they're boring. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't ever want to write a show about my family mm-hmm. because it, ugh, I have two siblings. We're, I, we're a white, a middle-class white family. Like, it's like there are a billion sitcoms about it yeah. and they're all sort of right. Yeah. Like, it's like not a, it's not a, it's, and that's a, and that's a, a privilege that I have. I can focus on making crazy conceptual art because I don't feel underrepresented. Like my, like my background and my history doesn't feel underrepresented mm-hmm. in the media. Mm-hmm. And I think that, it's it's weird. I don't like and as a white person, I don't I, I can't speak for people of color in terms of like the fact that they feel that or or trans people in the fact that they like want to like a lot of like some trans artists I know, like write a lot of work about being trans. Yeah. And that's really important to them because there's not a lot of representation. And they're right. There's not a lot of trans or a lot, not a lot of trans representation and not a lot of representation of what that experience is like. So I'm so, yeah, it's it's weird. So like you saw, you you looked at the social, the landscape and you're like, well, we have enough of this. I don't need to do this anymore. I'm also not super interested. Y- yeah. And then you want to do something else. Y- almost. I'm sort of like, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to try and, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a weird thing to try and parse mm-hmm. because I feel like I should make it. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I feel but like. But also like, I don't need to. No one, like, I like. The, the my strength is not writing about my family it's not writing mm-hmm. about my experience being queer because i didn't ha- i didn't have a crazy experience being qu- coming out or being mm-hmm. queer my coming out story is that my parents were like yeah whatever fine mm-hmm. my like <clears throat> i didn't i wasn't harassed when i was out in high school i've i don't think i've ever been like harassed harassed for being queer which is incredible but also we live in a very liberal part of the world mm-hmm. and so like i don't have like my experience as a queer person is not as is not important it's not mm-hmm. as important as a person of color who needs who whose experience needs to be out there mm-hmm. so that other people of color can be confident and and come out or and take those steps but also it's it's weird cuz it's like a, there's like another there's like another element to it where there are there are absolutely people of color out there that want to create the kind of work that I create, but feel that they will only get noticed for making work about their backgrounds or making work that is specifically about their, their minority status or like their experience. And that sucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I, like I want, I want there to be a place. It, it almost feels like I'm taking up a, by creating, by by creating like a lot of purely conceptual work i'm like taking up a space that would be better suited for someone who has more who has a different background and a, a more insight to tell but also i want to make art mm-hmm. and it doesn't and i'm and i and i want to make art the way i can and i want to support people and i want to use that platform to ma- to bring people to to bring people with me Mm-hmm. Um, and use my privilege to bring people with me mm-hmm. because like there, you have a very diverse cast in like in race ethnicity in <laughs> uh, gender to. identity yeah so there is diversity and there is queerness maybe not like but maybe from other elements that maybe that you are not a but you are applying it right yeah. you're choosing yeah i am i th- i would say it's I, it's yeah i feel like what we're like 
we 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 both been trying to like figure out yeah. the way that the the best way to like succinctly say what, like like how queerness affects my work. Yeah, because um, I just I feel like there's some <laughs> undercurrent there. I I just don't. It's it's and it's it's and and I think I said this earlier is that it's funny that you see it and I almost don't is because mm-hmm. I think queerness affects my the way that I make work in that in a way that is intrinsic to like how I live as a person in that the people that I interact with on a daily basis are mostly queer and and a lot and like and ethnically diverse um um and that and that sort of I'm I feel like what I'm doing is just bringing the people that I know and love and make good work with me and I want those and I want to share their their stories with mine mm-hmm. um and but I don't want to look personally I'm not interested in making art about my experience as be, my experience as a queer like my like my queer capital E experience if that mm-hmm. makes sense yeah like I've made work about my experience like my personal experiences before like open face beholding is a is about my experience but it's about my experience being a non-religious person interacting right. with a religious el- mm-hmm. element. Mm-hmm. But by bringing certain queer elements, be they from the actors or be they <coughs> from something else, there is something. That yeah. Just not yeah. in the text or not in the narrative. Or... I would say that I make queer work, but not in the way that a lot of people perceive capital Q, capital W queer work to be. Mm-hmm. Because my work isn't about. Yeah. Isn't inherent. It isn't inherently in the themes about the queer experience. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's. <laughs> I think what? we got it. I think we got it. Took it. like forty minutes. How it, long took did long, it, take? it took a long time. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's. I think that's a lot of. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's very. It's it's important to me. Diversity is really important to me because my own experience is bland. Less diverse. Well, it's yeah. It's it's my own experience is the majority. Yeah. So I don't. What I don't have anything to add. Yeah. In terms of like personal experience storytelling, mm-hmm. that is not, uh, that is not already not already been seen. Um, but there's plenty else. Yeah, I have like there's there's choreography. Yeah, this is uh, that's a weird show that no one has ever seen before, <laughs> and like lots of other there's lots of other types of work that I feel like I can add to yeah. the experience that doesn't involve me. Mm-hmm. Um, personally how are you applying it to whatever it is that you might be working on now whether it's another iteration of open face or like a third what are you working on (laughs) what am i I working on right now yeah i i'm kind of in a limbo because i'm not i don't i have a few ideas germinating but i'm not like actively pursuing making a a new piece of theater right now Mm -hmm. other than I've been working on a show for almost a year now, actually, called Floriography, and it's had a couple of name changes, but the basis of the name is still Floriography. That's very, it's very weird, and it uses tech. It's it's in my, I have an in-progress page on my website, and it's in there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really weird. It's about the Victorian flower language, which is what Floriography sort of, like, tr- translates. Like, what flowers represent? Yeah. In um, terms of meaning. And- so, yeah, the a lot of our modern our modern understanding of what, like, flowers means, like, red roses mean beauty and love and all that nonsense, comes from floriography, which was a language invented in sort of the early Victorian era that is completely metaphoric. So, it's, it's, based, in, it's based in bouquets, actually. So, you would combine 
different flowers together that had assigned meanings and then you would give that bouquet to someone and they would know what you meant mm. and it's like a, it was like a primarily a courtship mechanism right and i am fascinated by it over the last like four or five years i've been collecting um, I, I have a huge database compiling all of the meanings that i can find and i did a bunch of research and, and took his like a bunch of books out of the library and then compiled in there and then sort of like through the years i've been adding more and more to it but they're not all positive Mm -hmm. Like, oh, red roses mean beauty. Another common one is yellow roses mean friendship. A lot of people know that. But <laughs> there's a lot of really weird definitions that you would not at all think existed. Like, for example, if you were to give someone a sprig of basil, it means that you hate them. Hmm. Which is hilarious. Interesting, because basil's delicious. last thing I want, want to touch on is, is just art as an iterative process because you're talking mm -hmm. about you know you want to remount open face beholding yeah. and do something different to it but a, I think a lot of artists are scared to present something that's half-baked mm -hmm. or once it is done it is capital D done and yeah. should not be messed you, with yeah you can't edit is that it. something you subscribe to no <laughs> <laughs> obviously no why um, did you decide to reject it Cause you get so tired you get so tired if you try and make things perfect all the time and i say and i say that as a well and true perfectionist yeah that's pretty um, ironic is i know i i've sort of i've sort of come to the place where i know that i will never make the perfect thing it is a futile effort for me to make something that i will think is the perfect thing it's not going to stop me from trying because I, wow, I really do try. <laughs> but it's helped me deal with how, like, learning to set my own boundaries and the amount of work that I do and what I expect myself to be able to produce. And if I view my own work as something that is always changing and I can always make better and I can always improve on, then it makes me feel less crazy about putting that work on stage or or to or submitting it to an audience or that kind of thing um because i would be i mean i am a nervous wreck we are all nervous wrecks um but i would be so i would not be able to get anything done if i was so focused on trying to produce the best thing that i can all the time like the best, the sorry, not the best thing that I can, the best thing that is possible all the time. And also you will always see something that you view is better. Always. That's a, that's one struggle that a lot of artists know, um, is that it's really difficult. It, it feels like you will never view yourself as good. Um, you will never view yourself as being worthy of the accolades that people give you, um, and that's a thing that you absolutely should do because all artists, not all artists are good, um, but there are a lot of people, myself included, who have trouble taking things like compliments and, you know, doing other stuff like that because they view themselves as not being, as not deserving of those things. Um, and for me, that basis is really in the fact that I know that there are things that I could have done 
in that time frame that I had that would have made this better. If I had made this choice instead of doing this choice, if I had, you know, stayed up that extra hour and done this, or if I had, you know, spent that little bit more money over the budget and done this or all that. But you, you can't, that's not sustainable. You can't do that. The only road that that leads down is anxiety and your, your inability to produce art. Mm-hmm. For for me, at least. And I'm sure there are people who 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 need to hear that or, and or who it is really validating to hear that from someone. Um, but mm-hmm. that's 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 the way that I have to that's the way that I deal with a lot of this stuff like that is I view my work as something that will always be changing. Mm-hmm. And I also got really lucky really early on. Or not really early on. It was only like three years ago. But I did a design for a show when I was in school that was a SATCO, which is like a tiny like student version of... Student Alternative Theater Company, yeah. which is with UVic. Yeah, thank you. Student written, student produced, student acted, student designed. It's all students. There's no there's no faculty influence. So you basically just produce these tiny shows. Our friend Nick Guerrero wrote one called Oh Come All Ye Faithful, which he has a very similar interest in I and he wrote this show. It's also about faith and belief and modern art which was very funny because as we as we have just talked about those are things that i care about a lot yeah um yeah and we did this show as a sacco and he and the director i think the first the first time was nadine cordery who's who's a good friend of mine and she wanted me to work on the show and i did the production i did the so i did the set and costume design for it and then nick submitted it to the victoria fringe festival the next year and got a slot and he was like hey would you do this again? And I was like, absolutely. And he was like, this time, can you redesign it? And I was like, absolutely. This isn't like, it isn't like early on in my career, but it was like two years ago. And, you know, our careers are short enough at this point that the two years is a lot, is enough. And he, and I went in and I took this show that I had worked on a year before and I redesigned everything. And it was a better show. I took all of the things that I learned from the first time and just and either threw them out or used them as they needed to be used. And I made a newer, better show with it. And that's a really, really, really valuable thing that a lot of new designers don't get. And that's actually a thing with Canadian theater as well as a lot of new plays don't get the don't get the coveted second run or second performance because it's really tough to take a chance on new work in mm-hmm. sort of established circles. So um, people will tend to like do it once and then they'll have to throw it away instead of improving it. Yeah, because well, again. because people won't it won't go anywhere like no one else will be interested in picking it up or programming it or that kind of thing. So a designer doesn't really get a chance to look at something again. And often in school, you don't have time to look at something again because you have so many things that you need to be doing. And so that experience was really valuable for me in learning that, yeah, the second time you will always do better. And I think that's really validating. Even if you, because I I did a good job the first time. I didn't, like nothing I did was bad. I didn't make any bad choices. But I looked at it again a year later with fresh eyes and, you know, more things, more experience and more things that I had learned and said, no, I can do better this time. And I, and I did do better the next time. That's a thing that a lot of people don't have the chance to learn, which sucks because it's really important as an artist is to that you will never make the best thing the first time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for spending all this time. And it's great. Yourself. I love, I love talking. 
<laughs> I like to talk. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for this. Is it's, I'm excited. I'm yeah. Whenever you want to have me back, I will happily talk about more stuff. Yeah. <laughs>